Hi there, my name is Shoshana, and I'm a librarian at the Ypsilanti District Library. Welcome to the library's podcast, Ipsy Stories. Ipsy Stories is a podcast about the history of Ypsilanti, told in story form by historians, academics, community members, and local experts. This podcast seeks to unearth stories and perspectives that may be new to you and are often unheard. Our hope is that by listening to these episodes, you'll gain better understanding of our collective past, present, and future. The views expressed by each guest are their own and do not represent the views of the library. In February of 2016, the Ypsilanti District Library hosted a talk by Leah Zeus on the history of Ypsilanti's urban renewal program. He followed up with a presentation in April of 2018 on how racism in 20th century American housing policy shaped Ypsilanti. In today's episode, we're going to be hearing from Leah Zeus on the effect of urban renewal on Ypsilanti's Southside neighborhood. Leah Zeus is an Ypsilanti-based historian whose work focuses on housing, race, and the built environment. Much of his research is in architectural history, with an interest in 20th century American housing policy and its relation to racialized capitalism. So, without further ado the library would like to share this presentation by historian Lee Azus. My name is Lee Azus. I'm a historian in Ypsilanti. In this podcast, we will explore the history of urban renewal in Ypsilanti, which cannot be disentangled from the segregated housing policies and discriminatory lending practices that shaped the cultural landscape of the historic African-American neighborhoods on the South Side. I dedicate this podcast to the late historian Albert P. Marshall, who documented the rich and long history of the African-American community in Ypsilanti. His book, Unconquered Souls, The History of the African-American in Ypsilanti, has been the definitive resource for learning about the individuals and institutions of the African-American community in the city. Marshall's collection of newspaper articles, brochures, ledgers, and recordings form the Albert P. Marshall Collection, housed at the Ypsilanti Historical Society archives. His series of audio interviews from the 1980s with elder community leaders are freely available on the Ypsilanti District Library's website. They are critically important documents that recount the social, religious, professional, and commercial life of our city's African American community. The narratives are informed by Ypsilanti's long history of racism and segregation and offer a history that is otherwise missing from the city's various archives. So let's begin. On a hot July evening in 1996, over 150 residents of the South Side, the historic African-American neighborhood south of Ypsilanti's Michigan Avenue, 
packed the Workforce Development Center on Harriet Street to hear five proposals to develop a 10.8-acre parcel between Harriet, South Huron, and South Hamilton Streets. The triangular-shaped lot had been a weed-covered site since the city tore the last house and business down 26 years earlier in 1970. At this July meeting, the mayor, Cheryl Farmer, listened as resident after resident recounted stories of Ypsilanti city government's broken promises a generation earlier, of government attempts to eradicate their neighborhood, and the neighbors fighting tooth and nail against eradication. She remembered that the people were, quote, really hot that evening, unquote, and that they had, quote, lost so much so that something was going to need to go in there that was worthy of that loss, unquote. To understand the anger in the room and the importance of doing justice to the community and developing that 10.8-acre parcel, we have to go back to another warm evening in August 1961. On that night, Southside residents gathered in the auditorium of Ypsilanti High School as Ypsilanti's city council voted 5-2 to two to apply for a federal grant of $1,843,637 for an urban renewal program on the Southside. The prospect of such a project had led to fierce opposition from many community members who attended the meeting. From the vote in 1961 to the completion in 1997 of the building on the last 10.8-acre parcel, as well as the addition of the freeway interchange through Hamilton and Huron Streets, Ypsilanti's urban renewal project displaced hundreds of residents and caused the destruction of hundreds of homes and businesses. Community members on the hot July evening in 1996 called for justice, amends, and a reckoning with the past. But what the city offered that evening was their input on five development proposals that could potentially border their neighborhood. The origins of Ypsilanti's urban renewal program go back to 1952 when the city obtained preliminary federal funds for an urban redevelopment program in a section of the south side. The area bounded by Michigan Avenue, Harriet Street, First Avenue, and Hawkins Avenue was labeled, quote, a slum, where the houses, quote, almost without exception, appear worn out and dilapidated, unquote. The city determined that only 34 of 177 dwellings were, quote, up to standard, unquote. Neighborhoods on all sides of the redevelopment area were described as, quote, consistently of good grade and in many cases of a high grade quality, unquote. This is ironic since the city council's choice for the actual urban renewal program in 1961 was south of the 1952 study area and would have been, by its report, a high-grade quality area. At any rate, for several reasons, the city did not move forward on its 1952 plan and it went dormant for a few years. Let's explore for a minute why the city council focused only on the African-American section of Ypsilanti deeming large parts of it, in their words, blighted and slum-like. The obvious answer, as many Southside activists said at the time, was racism. Ypsilanti, around 1960, was as segregated as any American city with a substantial non-white population. The racism in Ypsilanti was systemic when it wasn't actually codified. What did that mean in practice? First, in terms of codified racism, almost all neighborhoods outside the South Side had had restrictive covenants to keep out non-white residents. These racial covenants use language such as, and this is an actual Ypsilanti covenant, quote, 
The said lots shall be used and occupied by members of the Caucasian race only, except for bona fide domestic servants of a different race or nationality. Unquote. Even after the Supreme Court struck down restrictive covenants as unenforceable in 1948, white realtors under the umbrella organization the National Association of Real Estate Boards vigorously defended homeowners' rights to refuse to sell to or even consider non-whites. In 1960, the Ann Arbor Board of Realtors opposed a proposed open housing anti-discrimination law known as Rule 9 of the Michigan State Corporations and Securities Commission. In a statement, the Ann Arbor Board of Realtors wrote, quote, We submit that all private owners of property have the right to determine with whom they are to do business, and that the owner has an unqualified moral and legal right to define, without limitation, the person's with who the broker may deal in consummating the transaction with which the broker is involved as agent. Unquote. This, of course, limited the housing choices of African Americans. One of the many negative effects of this was the overcrowding on the South Side, especially since the Great Migration into the area during World War II. Another example of codified racism was on the part of the Federal Housing Administration, a department of the federal government which effectively required neighborhoods to exclude non-whites in order for white mortgage applicants or property developers to get federally guaranteed loans. Non-white Americans weren't eligible for most FHA assistance until after 1948, and then, as in the case of the FHA-guaranteed homes built for African Americans in Ypsilanti on Burton Court in 1954, strictly on a segregated living basis. This meant that Southside residents typically relied on their savings and their own physical labor to build their houses. Another common practice was to enter into a land contract. In that case, a purchaser of the house made monthly payments to the actual owner or the deed holder of a property. Only after all payments were made was the deed then turned over to the family making the payments. But this put the purchaser in a precarious position because the purchaser was not building equity. So if they missed any payments, the deed holder had the right to repossess the property and the purchaser was left with nothing. We know that there were several white property owners who owned multiple properties that were under land contracts on the south side. African Americans with income and stature to get an FHA-backed mortgage if they had been white expected to come up empty. Uh, I urge you to go to the Ypsilanti District Library's website to listen to A.P. Marshall's 1981 interview with Charles Eugene Beatty, the longtime principal of the Perry Elementary School, who recounted the impossibility of he, as a black man, getting an FHA-guaranteed mortgage for his lot on First Avenue, even though he and his wife were college-educated and both worked in the public school system. Mr. Beatty battled the federal government's codified racism. Locally, the systemic racism involved, ironically enough, a set of codes, building codes, and building permits. Ken Machat, who grew up and lived on Jefferson, explained in a 1980s interview with Tony Ingram, also available on the Ypsilanti District Library website, quote, When my father was going to get a permit to build the house, he took the blueprints down to City Hall, and they told him they didn't care what blacks put up on the hill. Build the chimney out the window if you wanted to. Unquote. As a result, many homes on the south side were built by residents themselves with the help of neighbors or by one of several south side home builders. Building permits, at least according to Mr. Machat, were not always obtained or required.
we can safely assume that codes and building permit enforcement by the city were extremely lax at best. And in order to generate income, many homeowners had unauthorized units built onto the rear or sides of their homes. And finally, let's not forget that the first African-American, Frank Seymour, was only elected to the city council in 1945, and no blacks controlled any of the local banks or industries in Ypsilanti. Whites controlled the levers of power, and they could and did safely ignore the well-being of the city's black constituents. By this I mean services and infrastructure like paved streets, garbage collection, and connection to water and sanitary sewer mains came last to the south side. In 1943, at the height of production of B-24 bomber airplanes at the nearby Willow Run bomber plant, more than half of south side homes relied on privies, or outhouses, for toilets, and a quarter had no running water. While the last homes were officially connected to the sewer system in 1949, the city's 1952 application for the Federal Redevelopment Grant noted the lack of running water, indoor toilets, and electric lighting. The housing problems on the south side then could not be disentangled from structural racism. The concentration of economic and political power among local white men, the economic disparity, the lack of access to credit, as we saw in the case of Mr. Beatty, and the neglect of city services. But in its application for federal funds, the city used supposedly neutral language like blight and slum-like to describe problems that the city itself was complicit in creating and maintaining. In various studies from 1952 onwards, the areas of a potential urban renewal district remained fairly consistent. Michigan Avenue to Harriet Street, and the western city limit to Hawkins. As the Federal Housing Act changed over the years, city officials felt they could not pass up the opportunity for funds to rehabilitate problems that, as I said, they contributed to. So in 1960, the city hired Ypsilanti's ex-city planner, Clarence Simonowitz, and architect Gwen Morhus, whose firm had just submitted designs for the new police station, to study possible urban renewal districts. To meet the funding criteria of the Federal Housing Act, a minimum of 20% of the dwellings would need to be deemed deteriorated, which was defined as a finding of at least two environmental deficiencies and building code violations. To qualify for federal funds, it was in the city's financial interest to home in on one particular neighborhood to find an abundance of problems and code violations. Because of this, the city declared what can only be called a code war on the buildings on the south side, finding violations on hundreds of buildings that could then be used to declare the structures substandard. Simonowitz and Morhus prepared a set of maps which divided up the south side into 10 areas and rated the quality of housing in each. Overlapping the maps, the planners added clear mylar overlays in which they computed how much the city's share of the urban renewal price tag would be in each of the 10 areas. The calculations were not based on the level of disrepair of the houses, which is what you would probably expect. The urban renewal program did not rehabilitate homes. Instead, the program worked in the following way the city filed eminent domain requests with the courts to force owners of property that the city declared substandard to sell their properties to the city at a price set by the average of two appraisals. The city would then demolish the houses, clear the properties, 
and sell the lots to developers for $1,500 each. The developers were now the property owners. In theory, they would build new houses that anyone with the means or access to federally insured mortgage could purchase. The original property owners did not get first dibs on getting their old property back. So, on the set of maps that I just mentioned, the dollar amount listed in each area for a possible urban renewal project did not list the city's share of the cost of rehabbing the houses. Instead, the map showed how much grants in aid, a term used in urban renewal legislation, grants in aid, they could expect based on the number of people who would benefit from the new junior high schools, East Junior and West Junior. So wait, what does this have to do with substandard housing? The schools were already under construction, and the city hoped to use the cost of construction as their 25% required contribution to match the government's 75% grant, which funded the urban renewal program. That was what grants and aid was. So under the grants and aid rules, if the new infrastructure, like the junior high school, benefited at least 10% of the urban renewal area population, its costs could be applied to the city's share of the bill. It was conceivable that the city expected to spend nothing in exchange for federal urban renewal funds. And in fact, in determining the area in which to seek federal funds, the city did settle on neighborhoods that would require the least amount of city funds. As the community relations director of the planning consultants explained at a meeting at Perry School in January 1961, due to the number of students within the proposed urban renewal boundaries, East Junior High School offered the most grant in aid as an offset to fund the city's share of the program. Again, it is important to emphasize it was not the condition of the housing that mattered when it came down to establishing an urban renewal project, but where the city would have to spend the least amount of money. In the end, the boundaries of the plan, known as the Park Ridge Urban Renewal Project, extended from the middle line of Harriet Street, south to the city limits at Watling Boulevard, then from 2nd Avenue, east to the middle of South Huron Street. The freeway interchange, a byproduct of urban renewal, would not exist for another decade. From the earliest hearings, it was clear to many residents that besides the unspoken racism, the project was not about rehousing residents of substandard living units. From the beginning, city officials avoided addressing the relocation of displaced residents. Many Southside residents showed up at hearings voicing their concerns about the program. Dr. Thomas Bass, one of the most respected members of the community, asked about the relocation of residents, calling the issue a stumbling block. So where would the people be relocated to? As we have seen, and as activists would repeat over and over throughout the process, black people were not allowed to live in most parts of Ypsilanti or the township. The urban renewal program could only be deemed a success by the city's own criteria if the displaced residents, many who had owned their property free and clear or were low-income residents, could live in the promised new market-rate housing. But those with the means were a small subset of the displaced residents. So if the displaced residents couldn't afford to purchase the promised homes or chose to live in new housing in Ypsilanti Township, developers had no incentive to build homes. And this is what ended up happening. Some Southside residents objected to the program in its entirety and from the get-go. And foremost among the latter was the legendary Maddie Dorsey of 917 Jefferson Street, 
and owner of the Progressive Grocery next to her and her husband James's house. Maddie Dorsey quickly started an organization, the Ypsilanti Property Owners Association, to oppose any sort of urban renewal program anywhere on the south side. Their association had a five-point stand against urban renewal, the main points of which were that it was a segregated government program, that the city had no open housing law to protect African-American residents wishing to live in other parts of the city, and that there was no relocation plan for displaced residents. Ms. Dorsey published a newsletter which urged people to refuse city employees from stepping onto their property to conduct surveys or to offer any cooperation. She herself snatched a map and tape measure away from workers' hands who were trying to survey her grocery store. She distrusted a government program that purported to improve the neighborhood when it was the same government's racism that had prevented equality in housing and credit. At one hearing, Ms. Dorsey said, quote, We don't want urban renewal. We don't need it. Let us alone to progress as we are financially able. How can urban renewal help if some of us are unable to qualify for mortgage loans now? Unquote. Once the city approved the program, Ms. Dorsey and her husband filed numerous suits, some of which she won. She and her husband were arrested for painting tar across the official Park Ridge Urban Renewal Project signs on First Avenue at Harriet and at Harriet and South Huron Streets. And when Mrs. Dorsey was elected to Ypsilanti City Council in 1973 as the first African-American woman, she found herself on both sides of a pending lawsuit that she filed against the city but which, as a city representative, she was also a defendant of. Maddie Dorsey continued taking a maximalist, anti-compromise stance against urban renewal and later the freeway interchange. She claimed majority support of her position among residents in the proposed district. She was opposed by a pro-urban renewal group called the Parkridge Neighborhood Council, whose officers included Southside Notables, such as realtor and publisher Herbert Francois, who owns several properties on the south side, Wilburn Forbes and Reverend James H. Reeves, both contractors, and Jesse Rutherford, the longtime director of the Park Ridge Community Center. The All-White Board of Commerce and the Ypsilanti Business and Professional League, an African-American business group, wrote letters of support to the council. Amos Washington and John Burton, who had been the second and third African Americans elected to the city council beginning in 1947, also supported urban renewal. Mr. Washington was the city's housing commissioner and one of the family owners of the Washington Brothers Grocery at the southeast corner of Harriet and Hamilton that would be demolished under the urban renewal program. John Burton was still a member of the city council, the only black member in the early 1960s, and, as he pointed out in his opposition to Ms. Dorsey, he represented the interests of all black people. In an exchange in which Mrs. Dorsey protested the planned freeway off-ramp, he said, quote, I'm not sitting here voting for anything which might destroy the Negro community. Everyone should have a right to speak, but I don't believe Negroes are so ignorant or stupid that you're going to get walked on, unquote. In the end, as we know, the city prevailed and bought around 199 parcels of the approximately 353 parcels within the urban renewal area and demolished at least 128, displacing hundreds of families as well as businesses, including the Washington Brothers Market, Allen's Market, two pool rooms, Goodman's Fashion Center and Beauty Salon, and a Fago Soda Distribution Building. The bigger problem, as I mentioned, was that of the 415 families in the urban renewal area, 301 were low-income, would be difficult to house in market-rate residents. 
it's worth repeating that the Federal Housing Act precluded the government from building low-income housing on the acquired parcels in an urban renewal area. As mentioned earlier, the first few homes built were at a price point that only a segment of the local African-American population would be eligible for, and because of racist lending policies, any whites that might have considered moving to the area would have been denied a mortgage as highly risky. Only two model homes were built on the 89 parcels the city had acquired by the end of 1965. And as the city continued to acquire condemned parcels, but without developers looking to build on them, the city itself became the owners of houses they had no incentive to maintain, since they are going to be eventually demolished. But because they continued to collect rent, the city government became Ypsilanti's largest slumlord. So what happened to the displaced residents who wanted to stay on the south side? We know that some moved into available housing in other parts of the south side, but many others relied on nonprofits to provide new housing. The Federal Housing Act made provisions for nonprofit organizations to acquire and develop property for low and moderate income residents within an urban renewal area. The city rezoned a 9.3-acre site on the southwest corner of Harriet and Hamilton from single-family to multifamily housing as one solution to rehouse families living in limbo in the acquired homes that were to be torn down. In 1969, the Ypsilanti Business and Professional League and Brown Chapel AME Church and the Housing Associates of Detroit proposed themselves to the city as developers of a 144-unit low-to-moderate-income housing complex on the site, which, when completed, would be known as Parkview Apartments. Nearby, families began moving into the units of the 231-unit Arbor Manor Townhouses, a nonprofit cooperative housing project on 2nd Avenue outside the urban renewal area. Priority was to be given to displaced families from within the Park Ridge urban renewal area. Arbor Manor was followed in early 1970 with the opening of the first 76 units of new public housing on three sites, also outside the traditional borders of the south side. Along with completion of these multi-unit housing projects, in the penultimate phase, the city disposed of vacant parcels in a piecemeal fashion by selling them to small-scale contractors, individuals, and nonprofits who developed them for resale to individuals. The Metropolitan Detroit Citizens Development Authority, a nonprofit headed by the United Auto Workers President Walter Ruther and Detroit Edison's head Walter Sisler, received approval to purchase 13 parcels on which to build 1,200 square foot, three bedroom brick homes with basements to sell at cost for $15,000 each. James Reeve, the contractor who had been active in the Pro Urban Renewal Group, Park Ridge Neighborhood Council, would purchase and develop at least seven properties. Omitha Smith and Tommy Washington, the eldest daughter and the widow of Amos Washington, respectively, purchased seven parcels in July 1971 for $2,000 each, the standard price in 1970 for cleared lots. The federal government ended urban renewal as a housing program at the end of 1974. Ypsilanti, which had its program grandfathered in, continued to acquire parcels into the 1980s, even as homes rose one by one over the years on the empty parcels, which leads to where we began that hot summer night in 1996 when residents were called upon to voice their support for a redevelopment plan for the final site that was created by the building of the I-94 off-ramp that now cut through Watling, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, 
Hamilton and Huron streets, forming the 10.8-acre parcel that sat like an island between the streets. More than one proposal promised to pay big money to the city to build a gas station fast food complex. The Salvation Army wanted a community and worship center. Another group wanted senior housing. Lastly, Exemplar Manufacturing wanted to build a 103,000-square-foot distribution and auto parts manufacturing building. The owner, Anthony Snotty, was an African-American entrepreneur who was looking to expand his Ypsilanti-based business and expected to hire 85 new employees over 10 years, much from within the South Side. At the September 3, 1996 City Council meeting to vote for a developer, Mayor Pro Tem Terry McDonald said, quote, People from the South Side spoke with great unanimity that there should not be another case where someone from outside the community profits at the expense of that neighborhood, unquote. Echoing that sentiment, a mayor farmer believed that exemplar manufacturing had the most positive social and economic impact of all the proposals. The city council voted unanimously to accept Exemplar's offer of $64,800 plus jobs and community contributions for the parcel, which was much less than the $400,000 offered by one of the other proposals. The new Exemplar plant opened at the end of 1997. The unfortunate coda for the story for urban renewal, however, occurred just a few years later in 2003 when... Faced with Chinese competition, Exemplar Manufacturing filed for bankruptcy and closed its factories. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much to Leah Zeus for sharing this history with us. A special thank you to local musician Annie Palmer for providing music for this podcast. You can check out more of her music at anniepalmermusic.bandcamp.com. Thank you so much for listening to Ipsy Stories. If you liked what you heard today, please consider subscribing and telling your friends and neighbors about this podcast. You can subscribe to Ipsy Stories wherever you find your podcasts. You can also explore previous episodes with additional resources at ipsylibrary.org slash ipsystories. If you have ideas or story suggestions, you can get in touch with me at Shoshana at ipsylibrary.org. That's S-H-O-S-H-A-N-N-A at Y-P-S-I-L-I-B-R-A-R-Y dot O-R-G. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.